Hey guys, it's uh, Andy here in another episode of the Mountain Malarkey Podcast with Dave. Hello everybody. Welcome to today's uh, Tuesday tune-in. Finally, a little bit late, so well, nine minutes later than usual, but I think we can, um, we can, we can make up for that. You know, I'll just talk extra fast today. Um, so yeah, I think Andy is actually trying to, um, trying to work out exactly how to fix it, but yeah, we've gone live on the page now, so welcome. So awesome. So let's get started, shall we? So the first thing to say is obviously, yes, it's just me. Andy is on holiday. Um, so <laughs> Pablo, can we actually go back to the flu screen? Yeah, going to get a lot of that. Going to get a lot of stick about this, I think, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, guys, it's awesome to uh, finally get up and running. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's very rude, wasn't it? Yeah, very rude. But you know, I, I dare say accurate. Um, so welcome to today's. And so today, what is it all about? So actually, it's about two things. And I think first off, right at the top of the show, I want to talk about what today's act is. It's the 1st of June. Why is that so important, you ask? Well, it's because today is the first day of the Strides for Guys challenge. Um, so Strides for Guys was set up. Um, we want all of you guys, including us, not me, obviously, because I can't walk, but Andy's going to be doing my distance as well. Um, we are aiming to for everyone to do at least 100 kilometers um, in aid for our teams out there in Nepal and Tanzania. We couldn't do the trips that we do without those guys, and we know that it's been difficult for them um, across the world. Um, you know, with the lack of work and stuff like that. So what we want to do, we really wanted to do something that we know how to do best, which is walking, striding, hiking, running, climbing, all of those things. Um, and then ideally, you know, um, in the doing of that, raise some money for those guys out there to help them um, through these times. So when we go back out there, they're going to be ready and waiting for us. Um, the one thing I wanted to say as well, obviously, all the links, all the app um, and everything that you need is all out there. Um, it is about raising money. We want to raise £10,000, um, which will be split evenly between the, the guides in uh, the teams in Nepal and Tanzania. Um, and yeah, the idea is that we want to um, ultimately do the distance between uh, the summit of Kilimanjaro and the summit of Everest um, and do that, which is actually 6,318 kilometers. So collectively, I think that's easy. I think, you know, Bri, Bri, if he's on here now, he could probably do 50% of that on his own. Um, but yeah, it is really important that you guys get out there and um, yeah, get as many sponsors as you can, raise as much awareness as you can, even if you're not able to do anything other than share the link so other people can join in, that would be great. Um, the one thing I did want to say as well is about um, there's been some little uh, gremlins that have popped up with Strava. So first thing I want to say is obviously I know Strava is not free um, anymore and I know that it is quite finickety about how it works. Um, what, when you are posting in the Strides for Guides group, everything needs to go on there as a, um, as a run basically. Um, so you once you upgrade it you know, once you do do if you go directly from strava set it as a run um if you are using a garmin watch or any other device um and you you do it as a walk just make sure that you edit it to a run on strava um it doesn't have to be on strava though so if you're a little bit old school and you don't use strava and you're not interested in tracking every bit of information 
good old fashioned pen and paper. You can download the form um, and then just write your distances down and stuff like that. And then just give us a little post or send it in or however you want to do it. Um, that's all we need from you um, is just to take part and, you know, however you need to record it, you can record it. Um, there is also a way to add a manual activity to Strava as well. So um, if you're using an iPhone um, on the home page, there's a little plus sign at the top left. If you're using an Android, there's a little plus sign in the bottom right. Um, and you can click on that and just add it in manually without having to do a live record. So awesome. Hopefully that's okay for you guys. Hopefully that's it. Um, Lauren, who I'm going to be relying on tremendously today because the, the comments are quite hard to see. Thank God I've got my glasses on. Um, yeah, she'll be providing us with lots of information and everything like that. Um, I know I've been seeing loads of you, you know, have, have donated already. Even though today's the start date, we've had, you know, some donations come in. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for all of that. It's, um, you know, every single penny helps. I was only saying to someone the other day, they said, what if I can only raise five pound? And I thought, well, if we raise 9,995 and your five pound gets us to that 10 grand, what a hero you'll be coming in, saving us at the last minute. So awesome. Hey, Jim. Hey, Dave. Hey, Ramona. Hey, Paul. Hey, everybody who's on the live. Um, awesome. Um, so that's that with Strides for Guides. Any questions, by the way, just fire them in. And um, Lauren will uh, ask them for me. I've got a bit of a different setup today. Uh, but one thing I've noticed is you can see all of my uh, all of my trinkets here. You know, so there's Kumbu Koala, Betty the Yeti, and this fella who I'm not sure we gave a name, um, Greg or something like that, probably. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. And um, hey, Carrie, how's it going? Um, so awesome. So what we're going to talk about today. Uh, can we raise approximately 7k for my divorce solicitor? You haven't even got married yet, Ramona, but I gotta be honest, I do love the forward planning. Um, that is very, very, uh, forward thinking of you, I guess, but I'm sure it's not gonna be necessary. Um, hey, Paula, hey, Gary, how's it going? Um, and also, I suppose, onto the live and the meaty subject of the live today. So it's a little bit of a fan favorite and one we always like to revisit from time to time. Um, because there's a topic that never gets old. Our learning on it is always forever changing. Um, and that is the dangers of high altitude. So what are the dangers of trekking and climbing at high altitude? How can we prepare for them? Are they manageable? Should I be worried about them? Um, and what happens if I do experience, if I'm, you know, unlucky enough to experience high altitude sickness and things like that? So we're going to cover off all of that today. Um, by just, I suppose I should just put a disclaimer that I'm neither a scientist nor a doctor. All of my experience is exactly that experience in the mountains and what I've seen and what I've, what I've felt and what I've done. Um, so I'm happy to pass that on for you guys. But, um, I suppose a little disclaimer is, you know, if you're that paranoid about it, go see a doctor and stuff like that. They'll be able to give you some scientific knowledge. Um, so yeah, the first thing I suppose we could talk about is so high altitude. Uh, sickness, you know, and um, what they call AMS, acute mountain sickness. What is it? Why should you be concerned about it? And, you know, is it a major factor on all of our trips? So high altitude sickness, I'm sure as every one of you know, is just um, when lowlanders like us, um, we live pretty much at sea level and we go above sort of two and a half thousand meters, um, the body immediately starts reacting to that change in altitude. Sometimes those symptoms are very mild. Um, almost everyone experiences a little headache, uh, maybe a little nausea, something like that. Those symptoms, though, they can get, you know, from, you know, quite mild to quite severe. 
Um, when it starts to get more serious, that's when we start labeling it as uh, altitude sickness and then uh, acute mountain sickness when it gets really bad. At the far end, you have something called HAPE which is H-A-P-E, high altitude pulmonary edema, which is basically fluid on the lungs as a result of being at high altitude. Um, and then HACE, which is high altitude cerebral edema, which is uh, fluid and swelling on the brain because of being at high altitude. It's all very scary. <laughs> um, but I will say that HAPE and HACE very, very unlikely you'll experience them on one of our trekking trips. You mainly see them um, for people that are going up to around, you know, climbing six and a half, seven thousand meter peaks. Particularly, it's really prominent um, because of the amount of people on Everest. So when people are climbing Everest, um, almost always, you know, when the worst happens at high altitude, it's because someone's suffering one of those two things. However, for trekking, what we're mainly concerned with is sort of in the middle to the lower end of this problem, which is, um, hey, George, watching the live for the first time in a while. Awesome. Yeah, we're concerned more with the other sort of symptoms. They're not um, strictly life-threatening, but they could be trip-threatening. Um, and so what we've got to do is try and avoid, um, you know, them getting to a point where you have to sort of join Chopper Club and get sent back down. Um, mind you, you know, one of the things that we do get asked a lot is, and I suppose this question has probably already been asked, so I need to kind of have a look at it, but I'm going to answer it now anyway, is someone who's been to altitude and maybe suffered high altitude sickness, does that mean that they're predisposed to getting it? And does that mean that they can never go back to altitude? And I would say that for a trekking experience, if you're going up to around five, five and a half thousand meters, which is a pretty high altitude trek, and you have to turn back, it doesn't mean that that's now you're prohibited for the rest of your life from going back up to altitude. Not at all. Um, usually it's down to one or two factors that have not been managed correctly. Um, and by adjusting to those factors, we can then get you back up there and get you um, successful. But um, yeah, awesome. Um, I guess what we'll do then, we'll jump into some questions because it is just me. So we may as well just start. Obviously, any of you have any questions or anything now on the live, fire them in and they will be fed to me as soon as we can. Um, so having a look now. So Melanie Close has said she's not able to join the live. Tragic, but, you know, there'll be other times. Um, but you attempted Kilimanjaro a couple of years ago and had to be brought back down suffering from hate interesting so again what we just discovered hape is the uh, fluid on the lungs um, you had no real symptoms other than a guide recognizing the sound of your breathing whilst you were asleep no headache or breathlessness or anything you could think of you managed to get to four and a half thousand meters and would love to try again not sure if this would happen again and you're on the machame route so first thing i would say melanie is I would say that was an overly cautious approach. Now, obviously, HAPE is something that if you do have, yes, 100%, you need to go down. There's only one true cure for altitude-related sicknesses, and that's descent, descent, descent. Um, but however, it's normally diagnosed based on a number of different factors, not just one. So a guide listening to you breathe, I'm imagining through the tent wall, um, you may have had some interruptions in your breathing, or it may have sounded like gargly. Ordinarily, to uh, diagnose something like that, if the symptoms aren't glaringly obvious, you would normally look at so a, a strong and persistent cough, um, low low oxygen levels would be one. 
um, chest pain and also disturbed breathing even when you're awake at rest. It's not just something that happens when you're asleep. When you've got hate, it's, it's all the time. Um, I personally think that, yes, that was probably, you know, I'm not going to second guess your guide's decision. I wasn't there. So I'm going to assume that it was the right thing to do. I don't think it means that you can never go back and do Killy again. I think that you can do the Lamosha route, which is slightly longer. It will give you longer to acclimatize, which the body really likes. Um, and also I think that, um, it's something we can keep an eye on, but like I said, we don't just listen to breathing. Um, you know, there's a lot of different factors at play. So your blood oxygen levels, how you're feeling, do you have a persistent cough? Um, you know, and how you've been sleeping and how tired and fatigued you are. People with hape don't walk around normally. They're very labored. It's very difficult to breathe. And sometimes you even hear like a gargling and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, it's something I've never seen on Kilimanjaro or Everest Base Camp. Um, but you know, certainly it, it, it can happen. But in your case, I don't think there's anything that would stop you from ever doing it again. Um, hey, Dave, how's it going? Kim Lawley, that's one. Um, so, I think one thing that we should talk about as well is what you can do to actually prevent um, high altitude sickness. And actually, there's a couple of people mentioning it here. So Kim Lawley has said, the issue of hydration intrigues me. We're told to keep hydrated, but isn't um, dioxum, uh, diamox, I'm assuming they're a diuretic. So yes, you are absolutely right. And you've stumbled upon a really important kind of... Um, juggling act that you need to do when you go to altitude. So hydration is probably the single most important aspect of your acclimatization other than the pace that you gain your altitude. So you need to gain altitude very slowly and you need to make sure that you're hydrated. Um, the reason why you need to make sure you're hydrated, this, I hope this doesn't come across as too dry, you know, I'm going to try and I liven it up a bit. But essentially what happens is when the body goes to altitude, is that um, it takes about a month at altitude for your body to develop more red blood cells. Um, as a sort of uh, quick fix, what the body will do is start basically increasing the ratio of red blood cells to everything else. So how does it do that? It starts by this diuretic process where when you go to altitude normally, you're going to pee a lot. Um, and you need to replace those lost fluids and the ones you lost through exercise. If you stop hydrating, that process stops. So you stop acclimatizing, essentially, because your body can no longer do that flushing um, and increasing the ratio of red blood cells. So that stops. So that's why people who stop drinking very, very quickly stop acclimatizing and start getting ill. Now, Diamox basically turbocharges that process. Um, like I said, I'm not a scientist. Um, but that process that I said where the body starts peeing naturally to sort of drain everything that it doesn't need and concentrate all the things that it does, you have Diamox, it makes that process happen faster and sooner. Um, so yeah, it's uh, Diamox is essentially accentuating the natural process. You just need to drink much, much more water because it's all happening much, much faster. Um, so hopefully that's kind of like answered that for you and made it a little bit simple. There's a lot of complicated science around what, how Diamox actually works. I think we just look at the overview, you know, what, what is the result of taking the pill? It is really important for people that do suffer or start to suffer some uncomfortable high altitude symptoms. So if you've got a really bad headache, generally we say that, you know, you can be hungover, right? But you can still go about your day to day life. If you hang over so bad that you can't even get out of bed, 
Well, it's the same when we go to altitude. You can have altitude symptoms that are relatively mild that don't stop you going about your day to day. They're just manageable with some paracetamol and some extra water. But if they stop you from getting up in the morning and feeling like you can continue, that's when we need to look at Diamox and things like that. Um, so, yeah, another question. So uh, Sam Reese has asked, are there ways to understand how my body will respond to high altitude before I travel? What methods of pre-acclimatizing uh, can be done in the UK before heading out? So, interesting question. So, can you prepare for altitude before you go? Yes, you can. Generally, it's only done for people that are like climbing Everest and such like that. The way you do that is you get a high altitude tent and you basically sleep in it every night for about a month before you go. And that has the effect of um, acclimatizing you before you arrive. What we're looking at, you know, that's a bit extreme for what we do. Um, it's mainly for Everest and other 8,000 meter peaks. What you can do, first of all, is make sure that you're in physically as good condition as you can be. Um, the more you exert yourself, um, the harder it is to acclimatize. So as a general rule, the fitter you are, the less you'll exert yourself and the more relaxed you'll be. Um, but having said that, you don't want to be, the, sometimes the more fit people tend to go too fast, you know, so it is again a balancing act. Um, one thing you can do is you can visit the guys at the Altitude Center. Um, and what they can do then is put you in a simulated high altitude environment, um, either on a treadmill when you just walk in and they bring you up to around 6,000 meters. And they'll monitor various things that are going on and, and how you're feeling. And you'll get a, a much better sort of idea of how your body adjusts. I treat it as information, okay, just because if you have a bad reaction, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to be the case when you go on a trek because they take you up to that like really hard, really quickly, like almost straight away, um, where to get to 5,000 meters takes us like eight days, you know, so it is more gradual and, you know, far more sort of gentle acclimatization as to a sudden increase. Um, but yeah, you can do that. Um, the, like I said, mainly I think it's a mental thing as well. Let's not underestimate the mindset side of it. One thing you don't want to do is be sort of overly anxious about altitude because the first thing, the first time I ever went to Everest Base Camp, the first thing my guide said to me was people get uh, anxiety over base camp and they struggle to sleep and they have maybe like anxiety attacks and they're convinced they suffer from it. When in actual fact, if they were just relaxed and not thinking about it, there they probably wouldn't be any symptoms at all. So, um, you know, being relaxed about it, enjoying it, being aware of it, but not like terrified makes makes a big difference. I'm going to have to drink lots of water today because um, it's just me, just me talking. Um, so, yeah, another question that we got from Sheldon. Um, wow, so suffered altitude sickness when they attempted to trek to EBC in April 2019 and unfortunately had to be flown back down to Kathmandu and spent 10 days in hospital. Wow, that's, um, that's, that's uh, quite a big stay in hospital. Normally it's in and out the same day or one day. So my question is, are some people prone to high altitude sickness? And if you've had it once, you're more likely to get it again if you try to trek to EBC. Interesting question. I'd love to know um, a little bit more about what happened there. You know, why you were in hospital for 10 days. Was it um, an infection as well as altitude sickness? Because normally altitude sickness starts to get better immediately when you go down. If you haven't got like um, hape or haste um, so yeah, that's quite interesting. But um, I don't believe there's any science at all that says that once you've suffered high altitude sickness once that you're more 
likely to suffer it again. Um, there's lots of different factors at play. You know, you could have been a little bit run down and not realised before you went. Um, you know, you could have gone slightly too fast. There's really no way of knowing that if the group and the guides as a whole were going too fast, you would have just felt like you're walking with the group. But actually, a really slow pace is what's required. Um, maybe you need to just back it off a bit and allow yourself that extra time each day to acclimatise. Um, I mean, one good, one kind of good uh, story that I have is actually, you know, personal experience is my father. So we went to base camp together in 2017 and he turned around after Lobouchet. So we woke up on, you know, base camp day, set off. And within about half an hour, he realized that he didn't have the strength to carry on that day and was not going to reach base camp. So he turned around and went back to um, Lobouchet. Um, as a result, we did a long day then. So we went from like Lobouchet to base camp back to Lobouchet, which is which is a beast of a day. But um, yeah, it was really, really good to do. Um, and then anyway, so yeah, he hung up his hiking boots after that. You know, he said, I tried, I failed, I didn't do it. Um, for whatever reason, he didn't feel well. The, the altitude was really, you know, a factor. Uh, but he went back to the UK and then trained and we went back and did it in 2019. And he arrived at base camp. And he even said, though, like the day he arrived at base camp, the most tough day that he had on that trip didn't even compare to like one of the easiest on the on the prior trip, meaning that he trained a little bit. He went slower. He adjusted by drinking more water. He adjusted by taking Diamox, something he didn't do the first time round. And it made the difference, you know. So um, I think that you can 100% totally go back and do EBC. Um, I think you'd be very unlucky to get that experience twice. And if actual fact, now we know that you've had that experience, we can go ahead knowing that it wasn't um, wasn't something, you know, we know that it's happened before and we can look after it again. Um, yeah, interesting. Um, I know an interesting comment here from uh, Jane Moody that says, Beck Weathers, who very famously was a part of the 1996 disaster, suffered altitude sickness on Denali, but didn't suffer it on Everest, but he did lose half his face. <laughs> he did, yeah. So, he actually got snow blindness um, really, really high on Everest. I think I think above Camp 4, he got snow blindness and decided to wait there. Um, it's all in the book and the movie and his account as well, which is quite interesting. Um, oh, wow, Leah, come on. They've got Captain America to launch strike for guys. Yeah, I, uh, Captain Newport is what we're going to go with, not Captain America. Um, Carrie Swepson, is altitude sickness something that once the symptoms start, um, you'll have it for the remainder of the trek or can you overcome it? It can be overcome. So it depends on how soon you start treating it. So one of the factors is that there's got to be an open communication with the guide and the trekker. So one of the things we always say is, listen, you know, some people, they may not want to own up to how they feel because they're worried that that'll mean they'll have to go back. Where actually what they're doing is, potentially making going back a certainty because if you talk to the guide and let them know how you feel their immediate reaction is not okay we've got to get that person off their trips over their immediate reaction is to okay so let's first of all we'll do put the oximeter on the finger and we're going to see what their oxygen levels is then we're going to have a look at what they've eaten and what they've drank how they've slept what medication they're taking and that's about four or five things that we can sort of supplement um, which can overcome. This is why one of the reasons why I always suggest not taking Diamox 
what they call as a prophylactic. So don't take it to stop altitude sickness from happening when you don't need it. Take it as a reactive medication because it gives you somewhere, it gives you a backup. I always start every one of my treks with the idea that I've got Dymox, but I'm not going to take it if I don't need it. That means that if I start to feel unwell, I can take my Dymox from that point and it has an immediate sort of lift. If you start with Dymox um, and then you go and you start to feel unwell, it's a really big sort of bow in your quiver that you've no longer got to use because you've already used it. Um, and so, yeah, that's what I would recommend. Um, and yeah, just to answer your question, yeah, it, once we look at hydration, almost always that's part of it. Put you on Dymox. I saw one girl who I trekked with um, was at the Everest View Hotel. Didn't come out to see the view, literally sat down on the table with her head in her hands, really upset because she felt like she couldn't go any further. We went back down to Nampshi, um, gave her a bottle of water, a Diamox tablet, and in the morning she was dancing a little jig. <laughs> you know, she was so happy. So it can 100% be overcome. Um, uh, oh, yeah, Ramona should have jumped on the Diamox wagon. Yeah, it's one of those where I've, I never used it on any of my Everest base camp treks, uh, but I did use it on Killy in February. So I got to around 4,800 metres on a uh, the day you reach Lava Tower on the Lamosho route. And I could tell I wasn't firing on all cylinders. I was a little bit dizzy to the point where I was almost like stepping over myself. And, um, I, you know, I had a pretty bad headache and stuff like that. And I just didn't want to, you know, I knew I was drinking okay. And I knew I was doing everything else right. And my blood oxygen level was okay. But I just, it's hard to explain really. But I knew I wasn't firing on all cylinders. So I took the Dymox and the next day I woke up and I was. So, yeah, brilliant. Um, let's have a quick look. So Catherine Cartwright, set to climb Killy in 2022. Couldn't be more excited, quite rightly so. Basically, uh, coming from sea level in Japan, best ways to train for altitude. Uh, I suppose you could climb Mount Fuji, which would probably be good. I think that's quite high, isn't it? Over 4,000 meters, I believe. Um, again, basically everything that I've discussed before. If you're not, if you can't get to altitude, if you live in the, you know, so we have people come from Holland, you know, there are no mountains to climb. The best thing to do is get as physically fit as you can be um, and then follow the mountain rules actually on the trip. You don't have to pre-acclimatize before the trip. Our itineraries are designed for people who come from sea level and then go and do the trek themselves. And the trek itinerary will allow you to acclimatize. Just as an example, when we go to base camp, it takes eight days to get up, you know, but only three to get down. So that's why there's a difference. And when you go to Kili, um, you know, it's like eight days to the summit and then like one day to come down. That's the only reason we do that. You know, it's possible to climb Killy in about four days. Um, but yeah, we should never do that. Um, let's have a quick look. Lewis C. Coleman, the doctor told me to take Dymox as a preventative, but then on Albrus, I met a Mexican doctor who said it was a bit like, let's have a look. It was a bit like, uh, a character in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas with a big bag of crazy meds. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. I mean, yeah, like I said, there's there's a lot of science around it. And Diamox was not actually made for altitude. It was, I think, glycoma and epilepsy. Um, so there's a lot of different opinion about it. Personally, I think look, if you are going to take it before a trip, um, or at least, you know, at the beginning of the trip before you get to altitude, Start off with half a pill in the morning, half a pill in the evening. And at least then, if you start to develop more serious symptoms, you can up it to a full pill. Um, so it's all about leaving yourself somewhere to go with and stuff like that. Um, so look at some more comments here. So 
Andy McNaughton-Jones has a go in, mate. Um, I think uh, Andy's climbed Aconcagua. Both times you felt dizzy at altitude is because in hindsight did not drink enough. Exactly, exactly. Going back, uh, I'm going back to ditch my camelback and just use balls. Interesting. There is one of those things, actually, if you have the camelback on your, um, you know, and you're just relying on that, it's easy to forget about. Um, personally, I, I just make sure, so my mental process for when I go to altitude is that I start off with, a litre of water before I leave the trip. So I'll wake up in the morning, start drinking my litre of water, and then I'll make sure it's done by breakfast. I'll have about a litre and a half. I never carry more than that because I just don't need to carry the weight in my bladder. Um, and I can refill that up at lunch or anything like that. Um, and then I'll make sure that I have another sort of litre after the trip. So already then I've got like, you know, three, three and a half litres. When you factor in the tea, and the coffees and then all the other like i'll drink another liter before bed that's pretty much four or five liters a day yeah so that's good um let's have a quick look now ken o'leary due to go back to ebc mid-september and then doing the london marathon three days once you after three days you get back will the altitude help my run i'm wondering thanks bud um potentially andy did a half marathon the day after he got back from base camp um i Personally, I've never felt any great benefit. Um, you know, I know altitude training is really important, but I think you have to, you're going to be spending about two weeks, uh, well, 11 days at altitude, you know, and I think it needs to be a little bit longer than that for it to have a lasting effect once you come back. One thing it will do is it'll prime the legs and everything like that. So you'll be, um, you'll have some endurance in the legs. You'll probably have lost some weight. And I think all of those things combined actually do, um, uh, will make a big difference. But, mate, fair play to you, Ken. Keep us updated on how that goes. And, um, yeah, so, oh, uh, David Clift. Uh, sorry, not been on for three months. Had a bad fall and broke two ribs. Seriously damaged your right knee, which is mending very slow. No hiking or training for the last... Uh, wow, that's amazing. So, well, Dave, what happened there, mate? You know, we need to discuss this because, um, yeah, I crashed my mountain bike. You might not even know this if you've been away for so long, but a month ago, I, uh, well, over a month now, I crashed my uh, mountain bike and I completely tore my ACL in my left knee um, as well as some other bits and bobs. But um, yeah, I need an operation in two weeks, actually. Um, and yeah, that's going to be, you know, you know <laughs> until then, I can't really use my knee. I can walk without crutches now, which is exciting. Um, you know, how lucky am I that I'm going to get to learn to walk three times in my life, once when I was a toddler uh, and twice during my 38th year. So that's very exciting. Um, but yeah, I mean, hopefully, you know, you're going to be on the men soon and back to trekking and stuff like that. Um, you know, we want to get you on strides for guides, mate, as well. Although you could probably, you know, like me, just make, uh, you know, make Andy do it for you. He's doing 200 kilometers instead of 100 because he has to do my 100. Um, and if you uh, let me know, mate, I can get him to do three. Um, but yeah, awesome. So, right, having a quick look through more of the comments now. I knew the altitude would be a, um, would be a big topic because it is one of those things that's, it's at the forefront of everyone's mind when they go there. I think part of my sort of mindset when I go there is I'm, I'm usually looking forward to it. I like the feeling of when I can first start feeling the altitude and you know you're on a trip and you know you're on an adventure. It sort of really sort of hammers it home for me that, you know, when I'm getting in and out of my tent on Killian, it's getting harder and harder to do each day. Um, yeah, I love it. Like for me, that's exciting because I think, yeah, I'm on an, I'm on an adventure now. I'm at altitude. This is what I came here to do. Um, and yeah, I think having that mindset really does help. 
It's also quite funny, you know, I've been la I know people have like, um, Andy was laughing at me because I bought a blow up mattress, a Thermarest when I went to uh, Killy and I started blowing it up at camp one. I was, you know, big tree. That was quite easy. Uh, blowing it up at Shira one and two, I started to notice it was getting a little bit different. And then I tried to blow it up at like Karanga and Barafu and I was having stars in my eyes. I felt really dizzy. Um, yeah, and it became a little bit of a running joke there that trying to blow my mattress up at altitude just wasn't, wasn't, wasn't within my capabilities. But yeah, that's awesome. Um, let's have a quick look now. So Jane again, so sort of related hydration. Of course it's related. What size bladder do you recommend for the Osprey Tempest? Brilliant. Let's get on to some kit. Um, I use, I think I've got three liter. I've got about two bladders, no, three bladders. Yeah. And they vary between one and a half liter and three liter. To be honest, most of the time I probably just bring a three liter, but that doesn't mean you have to fill it up all the way. It's nice to have it there in case you want it, but each litre of water you carry weighs a kilo. So three litres of water, that's a three kilo rucksack right off the bat before you've put anything else in it. So generally speaking, what I'll do is I'll usually use about one and a half to two litres in my actual uh, in my actual bladder. Um, and then all you've got to do then is set yourself that mental challenge that I've got to make sure I've drunk all of that by the time I finish my day. That means you've got at least two litres down you, which is the bare, bare minimum. Um, you know, and probably still quite a bit less, uh, quite a bit, you know, you need to drink quite a bit more. Um, and I would definitely say probably four to five liters a day is what I would recommend. Depends how much you sweat, I guess. I sweat quite a lot. So yeah, I have about four or five liters. Um, yeah, exactly. Where would you be without a kit question? I see what you mean, Kim. I see what you mean. Every, every live is a kit live, you know, even the kit lives are kit lives, but the, you know, but yeah, so I generally use about a 30 litre rucksack as well. It's about fine, but Andy tends to take a bigger one, but I, I tend not to because it's one of those where the more, the bigger the rucksack, the more you tend to put in it. You start thinking, oh, well, I'll put it in in case I need it. Oh, I'll put it in in case I need it. When I have a smaller rucksack, so 25 litre, 30 litre, I, I tend to take only what I need and I'll make, you know, conscious decisions about what to leave and what to take. Um, and yeah, that's, um, that's what I do. Um, hey, Doug, how's it going? So, Doug, uh, ah, you're going to be seeing Andy soon, I'm sure. He's up your neck of the woods. Missed the start, registered for Strides for Guys, but not sure how you add your steps on Strava. Be heading up Ben with us with Andy tomorrow. Uh, yeah. So, the first thing I would say is that, Doug, you can add a manual. So, ordinarily, you need to set it as a walk. Uh, sorry, as a run, but the metrics are the same. So the speed, the pace, the altitude gained, altitude lost, that sort of thing. It's all the same running and walking. So you go onto Strava and you set it as a run um, once you've joined the group and it'll upload there. Um, if you're using something else like a Garmin and you register it as a walk, make sure you change it to a run. Or again, worst case scenario, you can go onto Strava and on the, you can find a little cross symbol. If you're using an iPhone, it's in the top left. Android, I believe is bottom right. And you just hit that cross and you can then add a manual one in. So you can literally put in how far you've walked, um, and stuff like that. So you can all register it. Um, hopefully that's okay. I know Strava's a little bit tricky. You know, quite a lot of people have come back and said about, you know, Strava being a little bit difficult to use. Um, but yeah, it, it is, but it's not the be all and end all. You don't have to use it. You can download one of the forms. Um, all the links are in the email and on our social media, and you can literally just manually write it down. And then if you would give us a little share, use the hashtag strides for guides. Um, and yeah, that'll help.
Um, oh, let's have a quick look. Have we mentioned Mandel Bhutan's yet? We haven't mentioned... Oh, I suppose I just did. Um, yeah, we haven't mentioned Mandel Bhutan. So we usually... Let's make this up. Okay, so let's have a look. Uh, da -da -da -da. Ah, Simon Wadup. How's it going, Simon? Ah, Simon, I see you have a question. What boots would I recommend for hiking and trekking? Very good question, Simon. Um, I would recommend the Mandel Bhutan's. I think they're amazing. I think that they're the most comfortable and yet sturdy and sort of, um, you know, give you that good locked in feel. I don't get any foot movement. And of course, no recommendation of those Mandels would be complete without the Superfeet Trailblazer insoles. So yeah, that's good. Um, let's have a quick look. So Jane, we need to line up shots. Shots? <laughs> Brilliant. FOS Dave? Kim, what do you mean? Is that, I thought that was like FFS for some reason. I was like, what did I, what did I say? What did I say? Um, but yeah, they are, the, in all seriousness, the Mandels are really good, but they're not the be all. Again, they're not the, you know, the, I know quite a lot of people that actually know the more I talk about them, the more people come back and say they couldn't get on with them. Um, probably the most popular set of boots you see on any sort of trek is the, um, the Salomon like 4X or something like that. Um, yeah, for every mention of the Mandels. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, I hope we got your uh, your bingo pens and stuff like that. Um, yeah, so guys, I think that's pretty much it from me today. Um, unless there's any more questions, I'll give some more opportunity to come through. Lauren, if you can find some, you can kind of whip them through and send them over. Um, yeah, I do apologize. It's been a little bit of a, a different one. Um, ah, there you are, Kim. You love the Salomons. Um, yeah, um, yes, you know, we had a little bit of tech at the beginning. We need to kind of work that out. Normally, Andy's laptop and everything sets everything up. So, um, for some reason, when I try it on mine, nothing works, even though I do everything the same. So, yeah, it's a bit weird. But, guys, the, uh, I think I started at the start of the show and I'll finish it at the end. Um, really, the thing that we're really pushing at the moment is this Strides for Guides, um, because we know, you know, you guys just from what you've told us and what you've messaged in, are really passionate about the guys who uh, provide those services for Tanzania and Nepal. They are the, you know, it's been said a million times over that they're the uh, backbone of every trip. Honestly, I think they 100% are. Um, all of these lives, everything we do, the Evertrekker community, it all happens because we run trips to these amazing countries. And without those guys, we wouldn't be running trips. Um, all we want to do is um, we want to raise that 10 grand. We want to give it to those guys so they can have a good quality of life during these period. Um, and so they're in the best possible shape for us when we go back. So, yeah, please do get sponsored as well. Um, you know, the more people that sponsor you for the doing the 100K, the more money gets raised. If you're not able to do it, if you could even just share the link, that'd be awesome. Awesome. So I hope you enjoyed the uh, another episode of the Mountain Malarkey podcast. Um, yeah, that was something a little bit different, wasn't it, from the Tuesday tune-in, but I hope yeah. you enjoyed it. I must say, you were brilliant on that episode, Ant. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, mate. Thanks. Now, if, uh, if you've enjoyed it, don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe to the podcast. Um, you know, all these uh, podcasts we put together, the episodes, try to reach as many people as possible. And if it's helped you, leave us a lovely review. Um, and yeah, we'll see you again next week. Yeah, all the best, guys. Bye. I'm going to go